It's the Victorian Variety Show. My dearest Miss Mitford, do you know anything about that wonderful invention of the day called the daguerreotype? Have you seen any portraits produced by means of it? Think of a man sitting down in the sun and leaving his facsimile in all its full completion of outline and shadow, steadfast on a plate at the end of a minute and a half. The mesmeric disembodiment of spirits strikes one as a degree less marvelous. And several of these wonderful portraits, like engravings, only exquisite and delicate beyond the work of the engraver, have I seen lately, longing to have such a memorial of every being dear to me in the world. It is not merely the likeness which is precious in such cases, but the association and the sense of nearness involved in the thing. The fact of the very shadow of the person lying there fixed forever. It is the very sanctification of portraits, I think, and it is not at all monstrous in me to say what my brothers cry out against so vehemently, that I would rather have such a memorial of one I dearly loved than the noblest artist's work ever produced. This is the Victorian Variety Show podcast. My name is Marissa, and this is my first podcast episode of 2022. Since a new year is usually about new beginnings, I thought it would be appropriate to kick off this year with an episode related to death, which is not something people these days tend to associate with new beginnings. Quite the opposite, actually. But when you think about it, death is a type of new beginning, especially when it's discussed in the context of photography which was a groundbreaking technology that was introduced to the world in the early Victorian era in the form of the daguerreotype, which was so wonderfully described in the quote I just read, which was taken from a letter written by the poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning to the author Mary Russell Mitford in 1843. Wow, there were a lot of witches in that sentence. Not sorry, even though it's spelled differently. The process by which daguerreotypes, which were named after its inventor, Louis Daguerre, was introduced in 1839 and was the, quote, dominant mode of photography for its first 15 years, end quote, according to Nancy West in an article called Pictures of Death. A daguerreotype was produced by polishing a sheet of silver-plated copper until it appeared almost like a mirror sensitizing it by exposing it to iodine and bromine fumes, placing the plate in the camera and capturing the likeness, then making the image permanent by bathing the plate in hydrosulfate of soda or sodium phosphate and ultimately washing it in distilled water and drying it. Daguerreotypes could also be touched up with gold toning or gilding and colored by hand with dry powdered pigment. That very brief summary is based on an article on the Sussex Photo History website called The Daguerreotype Process that I'll include a link to in the notes. It describes the process in 10 steps and includes a lot of cool graphics that I recommend you check out. 
But going back to what West was saying in her article, daguerreotypes were perceived in a tactile as well as visual way in the sense that the finished product was usually presented in cases made of leather or ebony and swathed in velvet. This seems to have been done for practical, in addition to aesthetic, or maybe instead of aesthetic reasons, because these plates were delicate, even though they were rather heavy. But I think you can see from this brief description of the daguerreotype process that it took some time to arrive at the finished result. And you also get the sense that some of the materials used were rather expensive, so that this revolutionary process was a luxury for many people early on in the Victorian era. However, I think that also explains why the daguerreotype became rather closely associated with postmortem imagery, and that, as a result, the practice became so common that, by the 1850s, when the collodion wet plate process, which allowed photos to be taken and developed in a faster and more cost-effective way, replaced the daguerreotype, the practice of postmortem photography continued. Before I discuss that any further, however, I want to emphasize that honoring the newly deceased through art was a common practice long before the Victorian era began in many cultures throughout the world. As I mentioned in my first episode on Victorian death and mourning practices back in September, the concept of memento mori, which is Latin for remember that you must die, can be seen as far back as ancient Egyptian and Roman times in sculptures, architecture, paintings, and jewelry, to name a few forms it's appeared in. So it's easy to see Victorian postmortem photography as a continuation of that time-honored tradition. However, for the first time, photography allowed people to have an accurate depiction of their deceased loved one's face, a benefit that even the most skilled painters in previous times weren't able to offer. And again, usually the wealthy were the only ones who really had the resources to hire a painter to paint their deceased loved one. I've seen a number of articles online that discuss how morbid and creepy the practice of taking photos of dead family members is. But people who say things like that are forgetting, assuming they were aware of this in the first place, that prior to our current times, when we do such a good job of hiding death, despite the fact that really it's all around us, people were used to dealing with death up close on a regular basis. This, of course, was before the funeral industry. So families prepared the bodies of their loved ones and usually held viewings at home. But in addition, most people in the Victorian age weren't snapping photos of their kids or pets, in, as in my case, every day like we tend to do nowadays, not only because the equipment was difficult to carry around and the process took a while, but also because it was expensive. So in many cases, the only time a person was photographed was after their death. As Melissa DeVelvis points out in Death Immortalized, Victorian Postmortem Photography, the death of a loved one was often the only opportunity for a family that wasn't wealthy to gather for a portrait, which is why you frequently see family members gathered around the bed or coffin of the deceased, 
often in or near the center of the photo. Unfortunately, the mortality rate for infants and children was high during this time due to the prevalence of tuberculosis and other diseases and the lack of vaccines and antibiotics that we have today. So many of these photos showed, say, mothers holding the children they'd lost or the surviving siblings posing nearby. Props such as flowers and timepieces, such as clocks and hourglasses, were included in many of these photos. And as the Velvis explains, the subjects of these photos usually appear as if they're asleep, which is an important point because it contributed to concepts like, quote unquote, the good death, in which death is portrayed as a peaceful process and the afterlife is viewed as benevolent. According to DeVelvis, quote, parents had to believe that their child had moved on to a better place in heaven. Their restful repose in postmortem photography reflects this belief in a peaceful afterlife, end quote. In another article called 27 Victorian Death Photos and the Disturbing History Behind Them, Genevieve Carlton emphasizes the sense of control these portraits gave families, noting that, quote, although they had lost a beloved relative, they could still shape the portrait to emphasize a sense of calmness and tranquility, end quote. So while a person today, admittedly, I doubt this refers to anyone who listens to my show, may not understand why Victorians who dealt so closely with death would need reminders that we're all going to die, like these photos, I think it's easy to see why these photos were treasured by Victorian families. However, having just said all of that, it's interesting to note that several articles I looked at in putting this episode together discuss the controversy that surrounds the authenticity of a number of Victorian postmortem photos. West notes that as the wet collodion process became more predominant, the possibilities for postmortem photos increased, you might say. So that by the 1860s, photographers tried to reanimate their dead subjects, maybe by placing them in poses where they're sitting up, holding toys, or maybe propping them up with a cast iron posing stand. I previously mentioned that it was possible to add coloring to these images by hand. So it's easy to imagine these images touched up by adding some blush to the cheeks or maybe some color to the lips. However, a few of the sources I consulted suggest that we shouldn't assume we're looking at a quote unquote post-mortem photo that's making a macabre attempt to portray its subject as still alive just because a posing stand was used in a photo from this period or because a face that otherwise appears dead has unnatural looking color in his cheeks. In other words, some of the so-called post-mortem photos we might see on the internet and in other places may actually be of people who were still alive when the photos were taken. In clearing up some myths about Victorian post-mortem photographs, Sonia Vatomsky emphasizes that posing stands were often used during the Victorian era due to the time subjects needed to hold still while posing for photos. But she suggests that many of the longer exposure times associated with Victorian photography often weren't as long as we believe them to be. 
Here, she cites Mike Zone, former owner of Obscura Antiques in New York City, which was featured in the show Oddities that I'm a big fan of. And if you have a Discovery Plus subscription, I highly recommend you check it out. But unfortunately, Obscura has since closed. I think it was back in 2019 I saw online that it closed. But anyway, according to Zone, in the early days of photography, you may have seen exposure times of up to an hour. But this usually applied to landscapes rather than portraits. And by the 1850s, most exposure times lasted from three to eight seconds. That said, blurring can occur even in exposure times of a few seconds, hence the need for posing stands, which according to Zone, typically weighed between 20 to 25 pounds, weren't counterbalanced, and as a result, quote, weren't made for or sturdy enough to actually hold up the weight of a dead body, end quote. So, despite what you may read about these so-called lifelike poses corpses were photographed in, when you think about how rigor mortis usually sets in a few hours after death, you do have to wonder how some of these Victorian photographers were granted access to these bodies by their families so soon after death and managed to pose them just so and arrange the props just right in such a short period of time. However, if you need more proof that many so-called post-mortem photos from the Victorian era were actually, I guess you'd say pre-mortem, in the truth about Victorian post-mortem photographs, Rose Heichelbeck points out that in addition to rigor mortis, swelling and discoloration often appear on the face of the deceased soon after death, so that, quote, most deceased subjects would never look like normal, even in a blurry black and white photo, end quote. And basically, she goes on to say that if you're looking at a so-called post-mortem photo, and think the subject looks like they might have been alive when the photo was taken, it's because they probably were. According to Heichelbeck, true post-mortem photographs usually featured less elaborate poses. The subject is usually lying in a bed or in their coffin, often in close proximity to flowers. And Heichelbeck notes that, quote, often the goal was not to make them seem alive, but to simply document the subject in their current state and before advanced decomposition set in, end quote. So I would summarize this by saying that the less sensational the photo, it seems the more authentic it probably is. Now, of course, you may be wondering at this point about how and why myths about Victorian photography spread. You might be thinking that most people living during this period were so distraught over the deaths of their loved ones that they'd never dream of having their dead bodies photographed in lifelike poses. And admittedly, I would like to think that the Victorians, who, according to the accounts that I've come across in my studies and preparation for this show, generally had a more practical view of death than we do today, wouldn't have such a difficult time dealing with the deaths of their loved ones that they would need to try to extend their lifelike image, it, it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. 
So I'll hold off on passing judgment on the families of the subjects of these photos. But call me cynical, but I can definitely picture unscrupulous photographers of the period looking to boost their reputations and grow their businesses by having unique photos of so-called dead people looking like they're still among the living in their portfolios. And it's even easier for me to imagine people today passing these photos off as authentic, either because they don't they know it'll turn the algorithms in their favor or because they know that less knowledgeable antique collectors might be willing to pay good money for them or both. As Vitomsky points out, however, even reputable people and websites have bought into the myth about these photos, not only because these myths have been around for so long, but also because, quote, there's clearly something compelling about a lurid, not-so-distant culture engaging with death in a way we don't, end quote. So if you find yourself looking at so-called post-mortem photos online, it's probably a good idea to be critical and not be so willing to believe that a photo of someone's supposedly dead aunt sitting down to tea is authentic. But as with so many other things in life, it is good to remember that it's a little more complicated than that. One more point West discusses that I think is interesting is that by the 1870s, the photos portraying the deceased as being at peace were seen more among people from Latin American, Eastern European, and working class backgrounds. And that among the white middle class, you were most likely to see portraits of the mourners rather than the mournees. I don't even know if mournees is a real word. I looked it up online, and so far, I haven't found anything saying that mournees is a real word. And I think that's a damn shame. Although I did find out that the term for professional mourners is moirologists. I don't know if it's pronounced like noir or not, but... I came across that while doing research for this episode. So I guess I can't really complain. But anyway, getting back to the 1870s, it was when you started to see a lot of photos of women in black crepe, sometimes weeping into a handkerchief or with veils covering their faces, as well as people looking at portraits of their lost loved ones and things like that. West refers to this trend as, quote, the performance of grief, end quote as opposed to the sense of stoicism that can be seen in earlier photos of this type. And then, in the 1890s, West explains that many postmortem photos focused more on burial and were often printed on postcards that could be sent to friends and family members who couldn't make the funeral. West attributes these trends to changing attitudes toward death that became more common in the 1870s as well as traditional religion being questioned during the Victorian era due to large numbers of people relocating to cities during the Industrial Revolution, and the large number of scientific advances that were being made during this time. So it makes sense to me that views on just about everything, even on something that's inevitable for all of us, like death, were evolving. Plus, embalming became more common in the 1860s, especially during the U.S. Civil War, when the bodies of soldiers killed in battle needed to be preserved so they could be returned to their families. This led to further changes in how funerals were held. For example, 
bodies started to be exhibited in funeral parlors rather than at home, and the funeral industry in general began to grow shortly afterward. So I think you can understand that as these changes were taking place, change was also occurring in the way the dead were photographed. I'm going to end this here, and I'm going to admit that this episode was a bit more difficult for me than others I've done in the past due to the items that I came across in my research. I really wanted to devote a whole episode to this topic when I did my episode on death and mourning rituals a few months ago. But once I actually started working on this one, I thought maybe I should have stretched this out over two episodes and focused mainly on, say, the daguerreotype and other photographic processes in the first one. And then I'll admit that finding articles that called the authenticity of postmortem photography into question kind of threw a curveball at me, even though I think it's important to discuss. Some of the articles I found seemed to have bought into the myths, but also had some good information. So there was some wondering on my part if I should include them, and if so, how to, ad how to address them properly. So the first thing I'll say is that I may do another episode on photography during the Victorian era in the future. And if I find out anything else about postmortem photography from that era, I may talk about that too. But what I can say for now is that this is one of those situations in which I think two things can be true at once. You can be wary about the authenticity of some of the photos from this time that are described as so-called postmortem on the internet. But at the same time, you can also develop an appreciation for what postmortem photography meant to grieving family members who had the opportunity for the first time to obtain likenesses of their departed loved ones in a brand new medium, which likely gave them some degree of comfort. And that, I think, can help us with any ideas that we might have had about postmortem photos being overly morbid and bizarre, just because this is something most of us don't do anymore. I saw an article a few years back, I think it might have been in the New York Times, that reported on some modern day families who had some creative postmortem photos of their loved ones taken, either because they wanted to honor things the deceased loved or because the deceased actually said they wanted that type of photo taken. I think there was a photo of a guy wearing the jacket of his favorite sports team and another of a woman sitting down with a bottle of her favorite beer at the kitchen table. Something like that. But as I see it, especially if it's something the deceased said they wanted, I'm all for it. And I have issues with our death-phobic culture making Victorian postmortem photos out to be freakish and disturbing. But I'd love to hear what you think. Email me at the Victorian Variety Show at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at the link in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter at, at VictorianVariety1. And if you'd like to support the show financially, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash MarissaDF13. I would also really appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to it on. You can do so on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and we've recently been added to iHeart and the Reason app, so I think you can do it there, too. 
But wherever you're listening, the ratings help the show reach more listeners, and I am incredibly grateful for them. And having said that, I would like to take a moment here to thank Jason and Lisa of the Designated Quizzers podcast. You two have been amazing in helping to spread the word about this show and giving me excellent feedback and resources for me to check out. And I am so, so grateful to you both. I also think your podcast is great, and I'm going to include a link to the most recent episode of Designated Quizzers in my show notes so that my listeners can pop on over to your show as well. So, listeners, after you finish listening to my episode, please feel free to go check out Designated Quizzers. And I do want to thank all of you for listening and supporting this show. I'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode on another aspect of the Victorian era that I find fascinating. And hopefully you will too. But in the meantime, I'm going to leave you with a quote that is not from a Victorian era writer or text. But I feel it's appropriate because I feel it shows how all photography throughout history is part of a continuum. And I think it also gives us a way to tie the ubiquitous selfies of today with the postmortem photos of the mid-19th century. This quote is taken from On Photography, a collection of essays published in 1977 by the late writer and philosopher Susan Sontag. All photographs are memento mori. To take a photograph is to participate in another person's or thing's mortality, vulnerability, mutability. Precisely by slicing out this moment and freezing it, all photographs testify to time's relentless melt.